All right, uh, this is uh, part six of eight in our Ten Commandments sermon series. Uh, we joined a couple of commandments together, two different weeks, and so eight weeks, Ten Commandments, and uh, today I think uh, is one of the top one or two more important uh, messages for us today. I've never felt more like a hypocrite than when I wrote this sermon uh, today because this hits very close to home for me personally. Anybody who knows me knows that. Let me give you a little background on that story, by the way. Uh, Pastor Gio, who just spoke, and I, if you're new here, we are a husband and wife team, and we co-pastor together. We're partners in ministry together, and it's been that way since the day we met. We met August of 1997, we were eight years old, and uh, something like that, and uh, from that day on, we have been working in ministry together, constantly. In 97, we planted a campus ministry called Stepping Stones. In 99, we planted another campus ministry. In 2001, we started a Hispanic church for Spanish language people in Kansas City called Iglesia Metodista Unida Camino Verdad y Vida which you should never name anything, <laughs> anything that long, right? But at least it rhymed. So, uh, so yeah, I, I, uh, you know, in 2004, we uh, founded a, a nonprofit called uh, Neighbor to Neighbor, which was a full-service homeless uh, ministry, uh, 365 days a year, meals and clothes and jobs and stuff in Kansas City. In 2005, we planted a church for angry young hipsters called Revolution. And in 2010, after all those angry young hipsters had, you know, like gotten married and had babies and changed their whole wardrobe from tight and black to, you know, dorky and professional, I guess, uh, we started another church for those people called Redemption, which was a nice place to go when you're done with the revolution, you know, like, uh, and so we started another church 2010, and um, now we're here, and we want to be here for a very long time, but I, I will tell you, as proud as I am, to look back with Gio on all that we have accomplished together in ministry, I would be a liar if I left out the other side of it. I left out the part where not long ago we sat on the edge of our bed together and we cried sobs of sorrow because it felt like we wasted our whole like young life together. All of our 20s we wasted on this work we were doing so tirelessly. It felt like it was for nothing. In that moment, I'm not saying now, at that moment, it felt like it was useless, meaningless work. And I see now uh, when we were on the edge of that bed crying into each other's shoulders, right? Like I see now what was going on. I couldn't see it then. It was too profound then to see how burned out we were. It was a classic case of burnout. You never see burnout coming, and everybody talks about burnout now, so it's almost cliche. Nobody pays attention or worries about it. Students, teachers, workers, stay-at-home parents. Burnout's a real thing. We were deeply burned out because for all those years together, we worked 60-plus hours a week. 
We worked on weekends, which is expected. It's a little bit of an occupational hazard for, uh, for us, right? But you worked on holidays. You worked on days off. We, you know, never as a couple made more than $40,000 a year through our whole 20s. Our household income never broke that $40,000, you know, uh, mark. And uh, we didn't have any savings. We had a lot of student debt. We had our master's degrees to pay for still. And at this point, we're pushing 30 and feeling like we're pushing 40. Like we just started wondering what it's all for. Ever been there? It's an ugly place to be. And in that moment, not long ago, we decided to walk away from ministry. We decided to not look back and not be pastors anymore. We weren't going to walk away from God, we thought. We just, we just couldn't do this anymore. We need to do something else. And then on top of all that, uh, Gio and I found out she was pregnant with our first child. And I went completely crazy. I don't know if uh, guys, y'all experience the same thing. Anybody here ever seen the musical Carousel? Two or three of you, maybe. All right, so go home and rent that. It's actually on Netflix because it's a pretty terrible movie, but you can check it out. And the idea with uh, the carousel is that this guy finds out his girlfriend's expecting a baby. And suddenly he realizes he can't keep doing the job he's doing. He's got he's to get to work providing. I went into like provider mode, right? And so I thought being a preacher will never provide for my family. I've got I've to find a better way to provide for this child I haven't met yet. And so... Kind of on a whim, I decided I'm going to be a lawyer. <laughs> I went to law school. I, 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 I took the test or I uh, applied and got accepted. I took the whole uh, LSAT. I went to Half Price Books and bought the, a used uh, LSAT study guide with somebody else's answers in them. And, you know, I did all right. I did all right on the test. I did good enough. And I got into law school. I was a first-year student, and I felt reborn, you know, in some ways. I, I mean, I felt old as, as I could be because everybody else was there was like you know, 17. But I felt, you know, I, at least I was doing something new, something different. And I was okay at it. But after a few months, the novelty wore off and I was back to feeling unfulfilled. I was back to coming home empty. And the only time I ever felt better was when I was discovering new things about God's word and helping people figure out their faith. So I called for some uh, support. I went to see some lawyers that I knew in high-powered firms, making big money. Because I figured if anybody can encourage me to keep going down this path toward you know, a legal profession, it would be these guys. But all they told me was how miserable they are. <laughs> all they ever said was, you know, we just wanted to help people figure out their problems. And the only lawyers that ever actually help a bunch of people are the ones that don't make any money and work like a dog doing it. I'm like, I'm already doing that. Like, I know how to do that, you know? Uh, and that's not working. For me, and so these guys, you know, kind of uh, put a seed of doubt in my mind. About that time, <clears throat> our daughter was born. And we came home from the hospital. And uh, Giovanna insisted that I take paternity leave. Because if she wasn't going to feed her workaholism, and neither was I. I wasn't going to get ahead of her, God forbid, you know what I mean? So she was like, you know, you're taking paternity leave, and you're going to be home, you're going to help me. So two weeks I was home, and we got a lot of sleep. 
I mean, I got a lot of sleep. I don't know what Gio and the baby were doing, but I got a lot of sleep, you guys. Like, just a lot of rest. And there's something about getting a lot of rest that opens your eyes again and you see things in a new way from a new perspective. You know what it's like to be away for, on vacation for 10 days and suddenly, like, your whole life makes sense again? You know that feeling? It's a great feeling. It goes away really quick when you get home. But, man, that feeling when it lasts, it is awesome how everything fits together when you rest, when you relax. And that's where I was and that, uh, during that paternity leave. I got this clarity. It's like I heard God saying, what are you doing playing law student? What are you doing in law school? Are you, you know, like legally blind or something? Like, you know, like, you know, like what are you doing? I know, you know I created you for, to lead the church, to interpret my word for people, to help people along in their faith. So, three semesters in, $30,000 in, on top of all that other student debt I was already paying off, I quit. Turns out I spent two years and $30,000 trying to fix a problem that could have been fixed with a nap. (laughs) I didn't have an existential crisis. I was exhausted. I didn't need a new career path. I needed a day off. And no guilt about taking time away. So today as we continue our talk about the 10, the 10 commandments, we're talking today about the fourth one. And I think I really need to ask you to engage a little more deeply with me. Today might be a little bit longer of a sermon and, and, and it's only because it's more important in some ways for us. It's going to hit so close to home for some of you. You're not going to like it. But be honest with yourself here for the next 20 minutes. Be honest with God. I think this commandment is unique for us. First of all, it's unique in that it's just the longest commandment. I mean, it gets the most airtime of all the 10 commandments. Remember when we talked about uh, the commandment uh, not to murder? And that was just two words, no murder, right? This one is 120 words in Hebrew. 120 words, the longest commandment, which doesn't mean everything, but it means something, how important it is. But more importantly, I think this commandment stands apart because it's the only one of the 10 that everyone breaks and no one feels bad about breaking. No one feels guilty for breaking the fourth commandment. It's the only one I know that Christians are actually proud of breaking. Christians will brag about breaking the fourth commandment. All the other commandments come with some kind of a a guilty conscience. You know, you you off somebody, you're gonna carry that around with you for a while. I hope you will, you know. You steal something, you're gonna feel guilty. You have an affair, you're gonna feel bad until you come clean. Like, but man, you break Sabbath. Nobody calls you out. You might even get promoted for breaking Sabbath. Across the board, we have been proud of breaking the fourth commandment. So let's take a closer look. It's in Exodus chapter 20. You can open your Bibles if you brought them. Um, it's the second book in the Bible after, Ex- after Genesis uh, chapter 20, and we'll start in verse 8. Or you can uh, look at your study guides. Those are pretty useful today, actually, for uh, small group discussion and your own uh, private devotional or your family devotional. Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. This is the fourth commandment where God tells the people wandering in the wilderness 
to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you will labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Sabbath is a Hebrew word that just means day of rest. Day of rest. You shall not do any work. You, your son, your daughter, your male, female slave, your livestock, your alien resident in your own towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that's in them, but on the seventh day he rested. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Be honest with me for a minute. Is it true that the only time you really think about remembering the Sabbath day is when you're really hungry on a Sunday afternoon and you pull in the parking lot of Chick-fil-A and nobody's there? Is that the only time Sabbath crosses your mind? I'm right there with you. I'm not judging you. I'm there with you. And be honest, be even more honest, a little part of you hates Chick-fil-A and everything about it for just a second. Because they don't get you. They don't understand you have needs. You know what I mean? Don't they understand? Like you, you're, you're the customer and you're always right. And don't they understand? You're like, you're like Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman when she's got that, you know, slutty outfit on. And she's like, I got money to spend here. You know, like you're like, you're like I'm going to Whataburger. Big mistake, Chick-fil-A. Big mistake. You know what I mean? Like, so you, think it's about, you think it's about you, you know, and you get mad that this company doesn't understand your needs. But Chick-fil-A has been doing this for a long time. Chick-fil-A's been doing this since 1967 when they opened their first store. Actually, they were doing that. They had another restaurant before that. that They were doing it since the 40s. But since 1967 at Chick-fil-A, for 50 years, they've only been open for six days a week. But here's the thing. They are crushing the competition. (laughs) Crushing everyone else in their market space. Now, they're not the largest fast food chain. They're eighth largest in America. But they only have 1,800 stores nationwide. Compare that to McDonald's that has 15,000 stores or Subway that somehow has 20,000 stores, which I have, do not understand. Has anybody here eaten at Subway in the last year since the whole Jared thing? Me either. All right, so sorry. I can't do it, right? So... Subway, 20,000 stores, McDonald's, 15,000 stores, Chick-fil-A, 1,800 stores, making, on average, $3.2 million per store. Second on the list is McDonald's that brings in $2.6 million per store, but no one else in the fast food industry makes more than $1.5 million per store. Chick-fil-A, $3.2 million per store. Remember... That's with six days a week. When everybody else is open seven, they're open six. Now, some uh, business experts criticize the model. Some people uh, in business journals will say that Chick-fil-A's ownership and their uh, board of directors are breaking uh, fiduciary covenant or responsibility to the stakeholders, shareholders, by running at six-sevenths capacity. You don't have the right to do that you should be giving your shareholders the most profit possible. But Truett Cathy, who runs uh, Chick-fil-A, or has for many years, uh, he would say, this isn't a, just a religious or moral decision. He would say, this is also a business decision. On their website, it says, being closed on Sundays is part of the recipe of our success. 
So it's not just to be pious, it's to succeed in the long term in their particular market, right? So uh, I think they're onto something because it would seem when a company treats their employees with the slightest amount of respect, like human beings instead of, you know, burger making robots, you know, and they treat you with respect, pay you a little bit more than the average and give you that day off every week. You can build your schedule around because it never changes. You can have a human existence with your family and make plans because no one ever gets called in by surprise to work on Sunday at Chick-fil-A. You can have a life that's full and makes sense when you work there as opposed to other places. Turns out that has a direct benefit to the way your company does business. Because how many of you, be honest, how many of you go to Chick-fil-A because you can't live without that food on the menu? There was one person at 940. I don't see anybody here. It ain't that great. It's good. It's not worth making a trip for weekly like my family does, right? We go there because the staff seem like they, they all have a stake in ownership of Chick-fil-A. They, they work like they care. They work like they have a human connection with their clientele. They work like that, and they keep the space cleaner. And how many of you go to Chick-fil-A for reasons like that? I know I do, right? So this kind of customer loyalty, when customers see not only those things, but also we see a company that in this landscape is so countercultural about, uh, about working on principle and not just for profit that our loyalty runs deep with them. Now, who here is craving Chick-fil-A right now? Spicy chicken sandwich, extra pickles? All right, that's not why we're here, but, but I just, I wanna, I, wanna make, I wanna make that clear because most of us don't think like that. Most of us don't work like Chick-fil-A. Most of us think and work like Chick-fil-A's critics because most of us say, why in the world would I sit around when I could be out there getting ahead? Why in the world would I rest a whole day every week when I could be catching up on emails? When, when, I, when I could be, you know, networking or socializing and you hear a preacher like me talk about Sabbath and turning it all off for 24 hours a week and you think, well, that's nice for a preacher to say, but, you know, preachers just work on Sundays anyway and you guys, you know, like you guys, some of you are thinking, you just don't get it. God doesn't get it. When he handed down those commandments, I'm sure that was a good idea at the time. It doesn't work for me. You don't know my industry. You don't understand my job. You don't know my boss. You don't know what's at stake. And I get some of that because I know how hard your bosses are on you. But I also need you to take a step back to remove that sense of victimization for just a minute to see if you can there's more than just your job and your success at stake, that when we talk about Sabbath, we're talking about all sorts of other things that are also at stake, like your longevity, like your family, like your relationship with your kids, like your relationship with your God. Your faith is also at stake in this conversation about Sabbath. And so it's not that God doesn't 
understand. Keep in mind, when he handed down this, these commandments, he handed them down 3,400 years ago to a bunch of homeless slaves that were wandering the wilderness, not knowing where their next meal would come from, and their kids were hungry, and they should be hunting and gathering every day to make a better way for them, a better life for themselves, you know? And, and God says, no, for 24 hours, don't do anything. Every week, stop, rest, trust. If that sounds crazy to us, how crazy do you think it sounded to them? I know you've got problems, but I don't think your problems compare to those slaves 3,400 years ago in the desert of Sinai. But that's the context into which, God, into which God hands down this commandment. And he really does it before Exodus 20. I want to take a quick look back to Exodus 16. It's in your study, guys. I'm not going to read it because it's so long, and, and uh, y'all can read it on your own, but I'll just tell you kind of the summary of it. In Exodus 16, four chapters before God hands down the uh, commandments, um, we find that the people are starving in the wilderness and they are hungry, their kids are hungry, and God sees their hunger and, and commits to providing for them daily, to giving them, if this sounds familiar, daily bread, manna from heaven, this flaky, crusty, sweet substance that the Israelites left their tents and found on the ground every morning. And God said, I'm going to give this to you every single day. And you go out and you harvest enough for that day and, and you'll have plenty to eat as you uh, keep walking with me. But he said, on the seventh day, I'm not going to give you anything. On the sixth day, I'll give you twice as much. And you'll work twice as hard on the sixth day to prepare for this day of rest. You'll go out and gather enough manna for two days. And on that seventh day, I want you to rest as I rested. I want you to rest, recharge, reconnect so that you'll have more than just physical fuel, you'll have emotional, spiritual, communal fuel for the journey ahead. That's the context into which God speaks this particular commandment in Exodus 16. But guess what happened on the seventh day? Most people rested. But there was a few people. There was a group within the Israelite tribe uh, the, the Hebrew word in here for this group, it translates to Houstonians. I don't know why that is or how that happened, but there was this group of people that just wouldn't have it. Why would I sit around playing games with my family? Why would I sit around doing nothing, being unproductive, if I can go out there and get ahead? If I could go out there and work and get a leg up? If I can go out there and win, why would I stay here and be idle? And so many of them started to go out and, and look for the bread on the ground. But, of course, they found none. And having left their family and friends behind and, and, and refused to rest, they came back home at night empty and frustrated. Nothing to give. You ever come home that way? Empty, frustrated. Nothing to give. When I read Exodus 16, I can't help but see us. And I mean this in the nicest way possible, and I mean myself too. I see Houston. I don't know why we're like this. I don't know if it's just an inner loop thing or if it's just a Texas thing or what it is, but I've lived a few places and I've never seen anything quite like it. The drive to get ahead the passion to produce and put our best foot forward and put on a show for other people. We know 
when we work seven days a week, we know that's not what we're created for. We tell ourselves, you know, we want something more out of life. We say one day we'll have it. But we keep pressing, don't we? Pressing to produce. Even though we know we're nearing burnout and we know our family and friends, they resent us or they miss us or both. And we know it's wrong. We've read articles that support the evidence for Sabbath. You've read the articles that, secular articles that talk about the the blessing of rest, like how important it is to get regular weekly rest. I've read about the science of Sabbath and how your body, when it's healthy, the systems in your body will replenish and renew themselves on a seven-day cycle when you're healthy. God created you biologically for this rhythm. We know this deep inside, but we live like something else is true. I even came across uh, atheist blogs this week. I, I frequent atheist blogs. Like, I kind of want to know what's being said and stuff like that. And I was fascinated when I did a subject search to hear that atheists have been talking about the importance of Sabbath for years now. There's all kinds of articles written by atheist bloggers that say, you don't need God, but you need Sabbath. And they don't even see the irony of it, but maybe one day they will. But you don't need God, but you need Sabbath. Every seven days, stop and rest. The evidence is there. It's compelling, but we worship at the altar of productivity. We've bought the lie that says that the only way to be more productive is to work harder. And that's a lie. The only way to get ahead is to work longer hours. It's a lie. So we worship at that altar, but look, at every altar that ever existed throughout history, someone has to die. There's a sacrifice at every altar. And at the altar of productivity, it's, it's you. It's your family. It's your relationships. It's your faith. It's your future that's sacrificed on that altar. And your boss will let you die there. Your coworkers, they will let you go there. Uh, the world, the culture will let you go there. Because if you remember very little else from this sermon, remember this. When it comes to Sabbath, no one will draw those boundary lines for you. No one. Your pastor, your friends, your family, no one will draw your Sabbath boundary lines for you. That must be you making a commitment and being disciplined about your own Sabbath. All right, I'm going to move ahead here, but, uh, but that's an important part of this whole uh, deal. So Pete Wilson uh, is this pastor that I looked up to uh, in Nashville for many years. During my formative years as a preacher, I looked up to him. I listened to all of his sermons. He started a church in 2002 called Cross Point Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, started with nothing, and in 10 years grew to over 10,000 people. And uh, as close to a rock star as you can get in ministry. And, and uh, every pastor I knew kind of wanted to be Pete Wilson. And then one day, out of the blue, this happened. Most of you in this church only experience what I do on Sundays, uh, especially those of you who watch online. Um, you just see me when I kind of come up here on Sundays. But the reality is, as a leader and a pastor of a church, uh, what happens in between those Sundays is just as important 
uh, and it requires a lot of leadership and it requires a lot of leadership energy. Um, and leaders in any realm of life, leaders who lead on empty don't lead well. And for some time now, I've been leading on empty. And so I believe that the best thing for me to do is to step aside from Crosspoint. And so I am officially resigning uh, as the pastor of Crosspoint Church. Um, I can't thank you guys enough for trusting me, for allowing me to be a part of your life. Um, we've had some unbelievable moments together. Um, you guys trusted me in moments when you were losing loved ones, and I had the opportunity to share uh, words at a funeral. You've trusted me when I stood before you and you were getting married, and you repeated the vows and the words that came out of my mouth. Um, I've prayed over many of you. I've prayed that God would heal you. I've prayed that God would heal your marriage. I've prayed that God would give you the baby that you longed for. I've prayed that you'd meet that special somebody in life. Um, we slayed a lot of dragons together. And so thank you so much for allowing me to be on that journey with you guys. And now, more than ever, um, I really do need your prayers. I need your support. Um, we've said right, that this is a church where it's okay to not be okay, and um, I'm not okay. Um, I'm tired, and I'm broken, and I, I just need some rest. So, there was a time not long ago when my worst fear in ministry was insignificance, not working hard enough to make a big enough difference. And if you want to guess what my greatest fear is now, after these 17 years of wrestling with burnout, forsaking the Sabbath, it's making a speech like that one day. And I hope we can all see the shared hypocrisy in a situation like this. Because if Pete Wilson had demonstrated a problem with women, somebody would have held him accountable along the way. If Pete Wilson had, had shown a, a weakness with porn, there would have been some kind of a public scorn of that sin, and he would have been called to account years ago. If Pete Wilson was, you know, taking money from the church on the side, there would have been accountability. But no one, none of his friends or other pastors or anyone else ever called him to the mat for forgetting the Sabbath and not keeping it holy. And it's my belief that after many years of not being held accountable to that extent, he makes this speech because no, no preacher ever got reprimanded or fired for Sabbath breaking. It's not just preachers. I never heard of a teacher getting fired for working too hard or a student studying too much <laughs> or an executive or a lawyer or a stay-at-home parent or an engineer. It's not how the world works. And it should shock us for that reason. It should shock us to the core that when God makes his top 10 list, he includes, thou shalt do nothing. When all the other stuff we know is so important to God, the stuff like feed the poor and take care of your family and all the stuff we know is close to the heart of God, that doesn't make the top 10. 
but thou shalt rest does. Maybe there's some ancient wisdom in there for us. You can only feed the poor for so long without resting until you hit the wall and have nothing left to give. And the same can be true for any other area of our lives. Now, back in Exodus, uh, between the time of Exodus and Jesus' life, people uh, kept the Sabbath to varying degrees of success. In the beginning, everybody did pretty good with it. But over time, as religious dudes are prone to do, the super religious dudes uh, made the Sabbath into a uh, religious game. They made it into a religious litmus test. And Jesus dealt with this all the time. You know, uh, in Mark chapter 2, there's one example of this where Jesus and his disciples are walking through a field and they're hungry. They're so hungry, in fact, that they pick grain, raw grain, and just eat it on the spot. That's how hungry they were. That's, that's pretty disgusting, but they were doing it. And Jesus' adversaries, the religious guys, were like, look, they're breaking the Sabbath. That's work. That's work. We told you guys they're not legitimate. We told you guys they weren't with us. You know, that kind of a thing. And, and they called Jesus out on this kind of stuff. And there was all kinds of craziness going on with the Sabbath. Like, leave it to religious guys to take the fun out of, uh, out of something that was meant to be just pure joy and fun and rest. The religious guys made it into, into this game. You know, like, who's holier? Who loves God more? They made it into the scene where all you could do really was just sit and sing hymns all day or sit in silence. You couldn't do anything that was physically, you know, exerting. Like you couldn't, you couldn't uh, uh, exercise. You couldn't cook if you like to cook. You couldn't uh, make love. You couldn't drink wine. You couldn't uh, do anything really worth doing <laughs> on, uh, on the Sabbath day. And that's the culture Jesus enters into, this hyper-legalistic culture and and when he's called out on his disciples eating when they're hungry on the Sabbath, he tells them this awesome, simple phrase to call them out in return. He says, guys, guys, man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. Human beings were not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for us. So what this means is that God didn't set this system up and then put us in it for the sake of controlling us or seeing how obedient we could be like a, like, like a bully or like a, you know, like a game. God created us the way that we are and then said, this is the best way to do this. If you want to have a fuller, longer, happier life, every seventh day, do nothing. Rest and relax. It was intended not to be a religious it was intended to be a gift to you from God every week. And not opening that gift is like leaving a Christmas present wrapped under the tree. Who does that? No one. That's what we do every week when we don't keep the Sabbath and rest. It's intended to be a good gift from God. A gift that when we open it, we say, God, I, I see you. God, thank you. God, I trust you. Keeping the Sabbath is about trust. If you've got one of those jobs that's hard driving, those bosses that are unforgiving, this is especially true for you. Keeping the Sabbath for you will be a matter of trust. It is seeing your life on the whole and seeing how everything you have is because of God, not you. Your education, 
because of God. The money in your pocket because of God. Everything you've ever enjoyed, all the beautiful things that you see and appreciate in creation, it's all because of God. Your, your life, the breath in your lungs, the sun on your back, the people who love you, it's all gifts from God. And taking the Sabbath, keeping it holy, is you saying to God, I know you have always provided for me. I know you're providing for me today. I know you will always provide for me. And so today I rest. Because it's not up to me. I rest. Because Jesus is the Lord of my life, not my boss, not my career, not my success or my self-image, but Jesus As we close, I want to move us into more practical territory because I know that's where many of you are at right now. You're going, this is a good idea. But what would it look like for me to set aside time every week to rest in God? So practically speaking, I just want to say before we close that today, in today's world, Sabbath means rebellion against production addiction. It is a willful rebellion. You You join the rebellion force whenever you take Sabbath. It's just like tithing, which says, all the money I have, it's already God's anyway, so I'm gonna give God a portion of it back and trust him with it. Sabbath rest is the same thing. All my time, all my energy, all of it is God's, and so I set this part of it aside to just be with God and those who love me. It's a willful rebellion against production addiction. It is saying, today I will not produce as the world would have me produce. Five things real quick, I promise quick, that the Sabbath should be in your life today as you try to incorporate this into your life. First, the Sabbath should be different. And all I mean with this is uh, when God says keep it holy, that's what it means. Holy means set apart. Holy means other than the norm. Holy means different. And so the things you spend six days doing shouldn't be done on the seventh day. All that production, if you walk around with the phone welded to your hand six days a week, the beginning of that seventh day, it goes into a drawer and doesn't come out for 24 hours. Is there a panic attack happening in the room right now? It's part of our problem, you know, turning it off. And now it starts the night before. Sending out an email to interested parties saying, I'm going to be off the grid for 24 hours. Y'all enjoy, and I'll see you after. You know what I mean? Starts at, your Sabbath rest starts the night before. Um, but but uh, it's got to be different. It's got to stand apart from what is normal. If you do housework six days a week, there shouldn't be any housework being done on the 7th. At least not by you. <laughs> uh, you take that day off. If you don't get to do any housework and you love doing things around the house, then maybe your Sabbath day looks like folding laundry. I don't know, it's crazy, but maybe it does. You know, I don't know. It's got to be different. It's got to stand apart. Secondly, your Sabbath should be consistent. A little bit of confusion about Sabbath. Uh, Some people think it has to be on a certain day of the week. It doesn't. Saturday, Sunday, whatever. Some people are legalistic about that still. To me, that sounds a little Pharisaic, like people Jesus had a problem with. It doesn't really have to be any particular day. My family takes the Sabbath from Friday at noon until Saturday around noon or a little bit after when all the weddings and everything kick up on Saturday, right? But that 24-hour, that's our Sabbath. And uh, we guard it. Uh, Religiously, we guard it. And so uh, we write that down in ink in our calendar, and only the most extraordinary circumstances will interfere with our family Sabbath. It has so much to do with how close we are as a family, and I think you'd find the same to be true. The third thing Sabbath should be is Sabbath should be fun. Don't make it a religious chore. 
It's not supposed to be that way. God created it as a good gift for you to enjoy. And so some of you, I think, don't keep Sabbath because it intimidates you to think about sitting around doing nothing. You just can't sit around and do nothing. That's like the third level of hell for you. Like you've been in a cubicle all week, you know, under fluorescent lighting and, you know, hating your life. And Sabbath comes around or that day comes around and you're like, I just want to do something. Sabbath does not mean sitting around doing nothing, you know. Sabbath can mean, if you, uh, if you are sedentary for the rest of the week, Sabbath can mean you get out and, and hike in the hill country or you go for a bike ride or you exercise or you do something uh, different, something fun that brings you life. You can go on a road trip. You can play a round of golf, guys. As long as you're not playing golf all those other six days of the week, amen, right? So you can play a round of golf if it's a, if it's a separation from the norm. So uh, Sabbath should be life-giving. Fourth, Sabbath should be shameless. Shameless. Why do we apologize for taking naps? Why do we apologize when somebody catches us in our pajamas in the middle of the day? Oh, I'm sorry, I'm just being lazy. I don't know any lazy people. I know a whole bunch of exhausted people. We should stop apologizing for the little rest that we do take for ourselves. There should be no shame in our Sabbath. Rest is not laziness. Regular Sabbath rest is a radical, willful, responsible stewardship of your body and your relationships that will give you longevity into the future. Fifth and finally, our screens out, listen close. Fifth and finally, Sabbath should be about rest and worship. Sabbath should be worshipful rest. However you keep the Sabbath, just know this. God's purpose in bringing you into Sabbath and giving you that gift is so that at the end of it, you are closer to him than when it began. To draw you into a closer, more purposeful relationship with God. So however you spend that Sabbath, if you spend it taking a nap, before and after that nap, say thank you. Thank you, Lord, for this awesome nap I'm about to take. My phone's off. Nobody's going to interrupt me. Thank you, Jesus. And when you wake up, say thank you again. You hike the hill country, get swept away in the wonder and awe of creation. Whatever it is you do on Sabbath day, spend it saying thank you over and over again. Thank you, God. Thank you. Because your worship is part of uh, your Sabbath keeping. Guys, uh, I, I really think this topic, more than all the other commandments, hits closest to home for us. And I pray that you will not take this lightly or let this be just another church service that you go home from and think that was nice, that was fun, and I'm going to go back to living the way I was before. Because not keeping the Sabbath not only dangerous for your longevity, it is a gateway to other kinds of temptation. And I will tell you, I hate using this analogy or this example a lot, but we deal with a lot of people that have had affairs and are having affairs, and just about every affair story I've ever heard began with this one day I was real tired. This one time I felt overwhelmed or cynical And I just caved. 
Sabbath rest is your soul's preventative maintenance. Sabbath rest is your life's insurance policy for your future. Sabbath rest is what will hold your family together through hard times. Don't wait for the hard times to come to claim a Sabbath. Do it now. And let Jesus be the Lord of your Sabbath. And know that he didn't come all the way from heaven and down across so that you could become a production addict and a workaholic and a slave to your job who barely knows your kids. You know, Jesus came to set you free. Claim your Sabbath. Say to God, I know and I trust you have always provided for me. And I trust you are providing for me today. And I trust that you will always provide for me. And so today I rest. Today I rest. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, bring a spirit of rest in this place right now. Give us a taste of what Sabbath is like. Because many of us have long forgotten. Remind us of what it means to trust you and how it feels to rest in you. And the assurance we can find in you. For truly, God, we have been restless people. Wandering through our own kinds of wilderness, trying to provide for ourselves failing to see you've always provided and you always will. We love you. We thank you for calling us to Sabbath each week with you. Give us the courage to say yes to that today. Even if it means saying no to all kinds of other things. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.